to find your seats. Good to be with you here this morning. My name's Eric. I'm the family pastor here, and I've been happy to step into the pulpit for the last three weeks, uh, preaching through a series on 2 Corinthians, just the fourth chapter. And just the idea in that chapter that Paul says twice about not losing heart. And it's been nice to walk through this passage and think about what are, what are the reasons that we as Christians would lose heart, would become weary, would be discouraged. And, uh, and so we've been going through that, and this is the final week in that powerful passage, and I uh, hope it speaks to us this morning. Let me open us in, in prayer before we begin. Lord, there is great heaviness here this morning, and there is great joy in what you are doing in our own lives, and as we turn to you. So let us hear your word as it is, and fall on it by faith, even as we have nothing else. In Christ's name we pray, amen. My uh, high school geometry textbook had a cartoon in it that I've never been able to forget. It was on a chapter in the geometry course on applied force through leverage. Leverage, and the cartoon was a photo of a man wearing a toga with a long gray beard dangling out in space like he was pole vaulting. And this man is Archimedes. He is a famous scientist, mathematician. He's the guy that sat in the bathtub and said, Eureka, when he saw the water go up. But he also had a famous quote where he said, give me a place to stand and a lever long enough, and I will move the world. Give me a place to stand and a lever long enough, and I will move the world. And so there he is in the cartoon, kind of dangling out in space as he holds this giant lever and tries to find his footing. And this cartoon has stuck with me because sometimes in my own life, I feel like there are weights that are too big to move. Burdens, discouragements that seem too heavy, the weight of suffering and sorrow and struggle before me is as if a great weight, and I think of Archimedes and the giant lever, a place to stand and think, could I lift this weight if I had the right tools? The poet Langston Hughes, in his poem Harlem, references this weight when he asks the question, what happens to a dream deferred, that is, uh, a hope put on a pause, something you were trusting in or hoping for, delayed or even disappears. He says, what happens to a dream deferred? And he asks, maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Deferred, pushed back, a heavy load. Our scripture this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 speaks to a heavy burden that we carry as people that walk on this earth. It's part of the human condition, the heaviness of life. But the scripture also gives us a lever, the lever that we're looking for to lift this burden, and that lever is our faith. We'll see in this passage that it is our faith, our faith in what God will do, that God will meet the weight of our own suffering with a far greater weight of glory. And we're hoping for that and clinging to that. That's our faith, that's the lever, our response to this great weight of the human condition. 
Let me read our passage this morning. It's just three verses. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. In just these three verses, we have a very clear contrast that the scriptures are laying out for us. There's an A and there's a B. The A doesn't move and neither does the B. Paul says we have an an outer self and it's wasting away and yet an inner self that's being renewed. He says we have this affliction and even describes it as light and momentary, but it's contrasted with a weight of glory to come. He says, this is what's seen, this is what's unseen. The seen is transient, the unseen is eternal. It's a contrast between two realities, the seen and the unseen, and he explores this space in between them where our faith comes into action, even in light of the suffering and the burdens that we carry. Paul calls on us to have faith rooted in hope. A faith in the unseen that takes us beyond where we are, like a bridge from where we are, beyond into the promises of God, strengthening us and helping us to not lose heart. So he says we look to things, the things that are seen, not, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Yes, that one was tough uh, just to keep reading that verse over and over again. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And for the rest of our time this morning in this passage, I just want to look at these two realities that Paul lays out for us, the scene, what is in front of us, what is obvious, what is clear in our lives, what is burdening us, what is the unseen that we lean into with faith and hope that God is bringing about. Paul describes what is seen with a couple of different terms, all of them plain to us. We know all of these. He describes it as wasting away, He describes it as momentary, our lives as momentary, and he describes life as transient. Let's look at the wasting. This is the first thing he says, the wasting away of the outer self, the outer man. He uses this phrase not to capture like a kind of body-soul contrast where the body's falling apart, but the soul is being renewed, although there is a dimension to that in Scripture, But mainly he's just talking about our our seen lives, our our outer lives that are laying out before us and how they're wasting away. We feel this process as we age and grow old and and, and finally meet our our death, as will happen for all of us. This wasting away, this decaying and perishing is very much of the seen world. And it is not just our bodies that are wasting away, but it is our minds too, memories slipping not being as sharp as we used to be, not as quick. And and even with the loss of this mental capacity can come kind of an alienation or a purposelessness in the world around us. We see this before us. We see this everywhere in our own lives. This is what's plain of the seen world, the wasting away. Paul gives a second one, and that is a momentary type of transience, meaning it it passes quickly, it's fleeting. 
we see the, 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 the wasting away in our own lives. We also see how transient, how quickly our life can go by. Even though in the moment it can feel like it will never end, it does end. We essentially repeat the same cycle every day, waking up, stressing out, wondering what's happening, how to respond to it, and then before we know it, we're back in our beds. We say there aren't enough hours in the day. I remember when we had our first uh, child, uh, we would walk around with the baby and people would say, enjoy this time, it goes so fast. Enjoy this time, it goes so fast. I heard it so many times. But finally I let it sink in and say, I do need to enjoy this time and, uh, and, and try to soak it in as much because this life is momentary and transient. And people stop saying that, by the way, when you have more than one. Um, <laughs> they start asking if you're done. And uh, aren't you supposed to be enjoying these days? Uh, <laughs> But I digress. Uh, <laughs> it is so plain to us that life is momentary and transient. I remember a time when I was profoundly impacted by the fleetingness of life reading the 103rd Psalm. Psalm 103 has this line in it. We even use it in our liturgy sometimes. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone but its place knows it no more. Its place knows it no more. Think about where you live and all of your stuff that's there. What, what, what words would you use to describe your house? What things are in it? You would say the place knows you. Wherever you live, you have adapted to it, and it has adapted to you. It has grown up around you. Our homes are one of our most intimate spaces. But what about the last place you lived, the place before, the previous apartment or home? I've driven past our old apartments, and I still, just driving down the road uh, or being in that space can remind me of memories of, of things that happened, but I'm the only one holding those memories. They are not happening at that place, and if I were to walk up to that door again, I would be turned away. I don't live there anymore. That place doesn't know me anymore. It's an eerie loss. I feel alien on foreign soil, carrying the ghosts of those memories, looking at a place and truly feeling like that time is over. That place does not know me anymore. So will it be for all of us. That is what's plain. That is what's seen. That's what we understand. The momentary transience of life. Paul brings up a third and final description of what this seen life is. And he says it's marked, marked by affliction in verse 17, a light and momentary. I know he calls it light and momentary. It doesn't feel that way. Hold that thought for a second. But he talks about this affliction that does mark a life, a heaviness, a discouragement, and a suffering. We know this feeling. We when we are burdened or discouraged, we say our hearts are heavy. Or if you've experienced a tragedy or just something very real with people in a room, you can feel the heaviness in the room. And when we finally experience a sense of relief, what do we say? We say, I feel like a weight has been lifted. We're not even speaking in metaphors. We actually feel in our bodies this lifted weight. Paul says that is of the seen world. It is plain to us. 
Now, he describes it as light and momentary. This is where we start to shift from what is seen before us and what is yet to be seen, what God has promised us, but we have not arrived at yet. The words uh, light and momentary may strike as as odd, even in this morning we're thinking large scale about the suffering in the world. This is not to minimize our grief. This is not a like buck up sunny type of message in the scriptures. This is light. This is over soon. Why do I say that? Because in just the previous verses, if you happen to be here last week and here, Paul describes his suffering as carrying death in his body, as being pushed to the absolute limit. He does not minimize the suffering he experiences. And so we're not being told to just ignore it and act like it doesn't matter or feel differently about it. But he is saying, in light of what is being prepared, in the eternal weight of the glory we will step into, there will come a time when we will say, that was light. That was momentary. The scene, as heavy as it was, turned out to be light. Like a little baby's bib that you wear, uh, or not, <laughs> that I wear, at the, no, that babies wear when they're eating in a high chair. <laughs> you know what we all wear, right? Come on. Uh, <laughs> Compare that to that massive x-ray bib that you get when you just lay it across your chest. You're like, oh my gosh, surprisingly heavy laying down uh, when you're laying down under that or trying to stand and hold that up across your chest. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying that, that, that in perspective, this one, there's not even a comparison between the weight of what one will be received over the other. That's the promise. That's the hope of what we have in God. Would not want to even talk this way if this were not promised in the scriptures and given to us, but this is what we can fall on. But we are still operating in this seen world. We, this is where we live, and this is where we breathe, and we see the wasting away. We see the transience. We see the, the, the affliction all around us, and, and we don't always respond in faith to what God is bringing to us. There are other responses that we can sometimes take there are many responses. The burden of, of this heaviness is on all of us, so there are many responses, but three in particular stand out to me as ways we respond to the scene to try to throw it off. The first response is, uh, is when we see our sadness in our lives or maybe the transient nature of our lives is to try to offset that pain with pleasure, sometimes called a, a, a hedonism, chasing after pleasure. If you imagine a set of scales and one is piled high with the weight of our suffering, the hedonist is trying to throw as much pleasure as possible on the opposite side to try to get them to balance out. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And there's a series of billboards all around Phoenix that I'm very tired of seeing. They all belong to a casino, and they show a different model doing something in a casino, and they all say the same thing. They say, reclaim what's yours. It's kind of the message. Come to this casino. Reclaim what's yours. What's the, what's the message in that, in that marketing? It's that your life is short. You should enjoy it. Your life is costing you something. You should reclaim it through wealth, through pleasure, through fun. Match the weight pound for pound with the weight of pleasure. And I uh, used to clean pools here in the valley, 
past this casino early in the morning driving to my first pool, and I was always surprised at the amount of cars in that parking lot, even at 7 a.m. This message resonates with people. Reclaim what's yours. Match the loss. But this response cannot ultimately lift the weight. This response does not work for us as we try to regroup because it does not satisfy. It leaves us empty and even the pleasures themselves picked up like levers to try to move this weight, they depreciate. We feel numb before them. We need more to even experience joy and pleasure from it. Now, God does intend for us to have enjoyment in this life, but it's intended to be found in Him. We will never rise to match the weight that we are carrying, the heaviness, by diving deep into this pleasure aside from knowing Him and what is leading us to Him through faith. That response to our heavy burdens does not work. Here's a second one that is also very common but does not work. In response to how transient, how momentary this life is, we can turn inward and we can say, well, I, I, I may not be able to control the heaviness of life, but I will control what I can. I'll control my time. I'll control my energy, control my relationships and my career, my sleep. I know I won't be able to eliminate this heaviness completely, but at least I can try to manipulate it within the scene. And this is so common, this fixation on what we can control. And yet, this response mocks us because no matter how much we try to control, things continue to waste away and escape our grasp. Our time and our wealth, our energy, our studies, our preparation, our good efforts, none of them guarantee that this weight will be suffered, will be, this weight of suffering will be lifted. Jesus tells a parable of a rich man whose land produces much, much wealth, and in response, he tears down his barns and builds bigger ones so that he can stockpile them. It's this control and this calculated endeavor, and he finally says after his work, now I can sit back and relax for the next couple years. And God says to him, you fool, tonight you will die, and what will happen to these things that you have stored up? This is the impulse to control. We see that it can only take us so far as it did for this man. Here is the third response to this weight of the scene in which we are under is that we can draw up a, a kind of pessimism around ourselves to protect ourselves from, uh, from this suffering. Maybe you think of this as a nihilism or a kind of subtracting meaning from life. It's the idea that the reason we're suffering is because we actually uh, attach too much meaning to our suffering in our lives, that all of it is meaningless. And I know people who have truly believed this when you got down to it with them. And you know people like that as well. But this philosophy ultimately bites back for it as much as it cuts out the negative of life, so it removes the highs as well. We cannot reduce meaning from this world. We cannot engage in pleasure enough to offset it. Neither can we uh, control it, the outcome we need. The only proper response, the only lever to lift this weight is our faith. It's the only shift it's the only shift that we can use to move this weight. And here is what Paul was saying in faith here. 
This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, to the things that are unseen, did it again, not to the things that are seen. This is faith, looking to what is not yet realized, to the invisible, away from the visible. Some do not like to hear about faith. They think it is kind of a Christian way of getting off the hook without having to explain anything. Like faith is something we can just kind of say, uh, and, and it has no basis, and we're just, we'll just take it by faith. But, but this is not true faith, for the Scriptures define faith as an assurance of what is hoped for. That is, a, a trust, a reliance on what is hoped in, a conviction, an inner resolve that what is not yet will be brought about by God. This type of faith requires absolute trust, reassuring ourselves of what is hoped for yet not seen. It says, in the weight of suffering, true faith says, I am assured of deliverance, though it is only still a hope. I'm convicted that God loves me, though it does not seem that way right now. And it takes immense strength to do this. This is not glib. This is strength that God provides to withstand the storm. So faith is not for the faint of heart. It is not pie-in-the-sky thinking or a type of Pollyanna thinking where it's just because everything will work out. Or a positive manifesting where we speak a positive outcome. Rather, it is this, this uncanny ability to look beyond what is right in front of us and to the promises of God, what is yet not seen, and trust that God will not only match our suffering pound for pound, but will exceed it beyond anything we could imagine, an eternal weight of glory. This is the unseen reality that God has promised us and on which our hope has been. And indeed, we've even seen it already in this, uh, in this first verse where Paul talked about the outer self wasting away, talked about the inner self being renewed. What is this inner self? What is this inner man? It's, again, not the soul. It's this reality that is not seen that God is restoring and strengthening. And Paul says this is not a mere replacement, but it is an abounding replacement, as he says, day by day, continuously renewed. And what is being prepared through this renewal, what is being worked through this preparation within us and even in our afflictions, it's this eternal weight of glory. That is the unseen. And this eternal weight of glory is kind of a wink from, uh, from Paul here, because the Hebrew word for glory is the same word for like a weightiness or, um, or a gravitas or a majesty. And so the word doubles up and he's, 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 uh, he's showing us that this glory we'll enter will be very heavy. And maybe this strikes you as odd. Maybe a, a weighty glory, the weight of glory is not exactly the thing you're looking for when you think of the weights and burdens in your own lives. Maybe this doesn't even seem to answer the question for us. The wasting away, the transience, awaited glory. That's not exactly what I was looking for. Well, C.S. Lewis uh, has a sermon entitled The Weight of Glory, and he draws a little bit on this passage as well. And he confesses to feeling a similar way when he thought about the weight of glory. L listen to his hesitation on the part of the glory. He says, Glory or receiving glory suggests two ideas to me. 
The first seems wicked and the other ridiculous. Either glory means fame or it means luminosity. As for the first, to be famous means to be better known than other people. A desire for fame appears to be competitive. He says this would be from hell rather than heaven, a desire for fame. It would be sinful. So that's one idea of glory, fame. He says the other one is, is luminous. And as for that, who wishes to become a kind of living electric light bulb? I know I've thought of glory that way sometimes. Like I'm just kind of glowing up in heaven and like, it's great. And maybe you feel the same way. It's good for God to be glorious, to be famous, and even to be luminous, as the scriptures tell us he is. But we don't maybe deserve either of that, or that would be just ridiculous for us. But then Lewis says what, what, what helped him was remembering what we should remember, that when we enter the kingdom of heaven, it will be, through, it will be in humility as a child. And we will hear the words of God, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so the glory we will enter into will be one of humility before God in which we feel the delight of God in his work in us. It will be like a child climbing onto the lap of his father and receiving a kiss. The proximity, the relationship, the, the, the validation, that is the glory we enter in with God. The victory over sin and death and to know the love of God in his presence. That is glory indeed. And it is in this outcome, this unseen reality that we are moving towards that is our hope. That's the glory. What about the weight? This one is important too. We have seen the world has, as its hallmark traits, transient and being momentary and wasting away. This is a place that will soon not know us, but God has prepared an eternally weighty place for us, a place that will know us forevermore. For this, I want to turn back to Lewis one more time, but to a different work he, he wrote called The Great Divorce, where he describes heaven. If you've ever read it, it's very weird to describe this allegory, but essentially a group of souls from hell take a field trip to heaven to walk around and experience it and to hopefully receive grace that they might repent. And it's exploring the, the dichotomy between these interactions, but you take on the perspective of one soul in particular, and he notices as they step off the bus into heaven, the grass does not bend under our feet. The dewdrops themselves are not disturbed. That is... They have zero effect on the terrain. It is as if they are not there. And then finally it clicks for this soul. He's been seeing everyone as kind of ghostly. And then he realizes this is the other way around. What I'm seeing are ghosts. Those are men as they've always been. But it's the light, it's the grass, it's the trees that are different, made of some different substance so much solider than things in our country, speaking to earth. And you see what Lewis is driving at here? He's driving at this eternal weight, the weight more solid than anything we've known, no more transience, not momentary whatsoever. For the inhabitants of heaven, the grass moves beneath their feet. It is their country. These are uh, two horizons that we're looking at, the, the seen and the unseen. In closing, I want to end on this uh, qu 
quote from the theologian John Stott who said, we really need to meditate on New Testament texts which bring together past and future eternities into a single horizon. Kind of heavy quote. But he's basically talking about the past and what is the future. And there are verses just like this all through the New Testament that bring these two realities, the seen and the unseen, into a single horizon line. And by meditating on this is where our faith is found. As we see the horizon that we are in, the space that we are in, the scene, the wasting away, the transience, the affliction, and we see that fading even as the greater horizon that God is preparing us grows bigger and bigger still. And faith, as God gives us, is the bridge between these two horizons to see this great thing that he is preparing for us and to not lose heart to consider that what we have now is fleeting and that is plain to us, but what is being prepared will be of eternal weight and glory. And as we run towards this horizon, let's run like the author of Hebrews tells us, to run with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the unseen and the seen. For there's a moment for Jesus when all he was seen was the cross he was carrying, but he did not lose heart, for he knew what was unseen, that he would be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And why, why did he do this? The passage in Hebrews gives us the reason, the joy that was set before him, the joy of founding our faith, of renewing our faith, the joy of being able to welcome us in with him and say, well done. And the joy to stand with us in a place more real than anything we have ever known. No more transience, no more wasting away. By this joy and faith, Christ carried the weight of our sin that he might bring us into an eternal weight of glory with him. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need you to speak into our lives, to lead us by faith, not by sight. We can only do that through your power. If left to ourselves, we are just simply manipulating and tweaking what is already transient. You have given us eternal promises, and yet help our unbelief, Lord, even as the world seems so weighty, it's hard to imagine a weight that would ever surpass that. Help our unbelief that our faith in you and the work of Christ might lift this weight for us. In Christ's name, amen.